I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but when I was a kid, I loved to read. When I would go to bed at night, many times I would stay up late under my blankets and I would be reading a book. I would position a flashlight over my shoulder in just the right way so it was shining on the book and I would get lost in the world of the boxcar children, the Hardy Boys, Narnia. So hard to put down a good book at the end of a chapter. After all, every good book is written with a cliffhanger at the end of the chapter, right? You just got to keep reading the next chapter. Of course, then you wake up the next morning all cranky because you're up until 3 o'clock reading. <laughs> Three years ago, we began a story the story of God's glory. God revealed his glory to Israel through their redemption and through the, through the exodus from Egypt. The book of Exodus left us with something of a, of a cliffhanger, though, because although God had mercifully revealed his name, his name, merciful and gracious, so to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, it was clear by the end of the book of Exodus that something was missing. When we finished the book of Exodus, it was clear that true worship, free access to the presence of the glorious God, true worship was hindered. And so we turned to the Gospel of John, and John picked up the story where Moses left off there in the wilderness. And John told us that that, that eternal glorious God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that God had become a man. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was him, this is he of whom I said, he, is, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Chapter 2 of the story of God's glory is a chapter of Jesus, who is God himself. God incarnate. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John tells us the story here in chapter 2, the story of God's glory. This morning, after two years in the Gospel of John, 
We finished last week, the last section there in chapter 21. And so this week, we're going to step back and we're going to consider the big picture of the Gospel of John. What we've learned from the Gospel of John over the last two years. What the Gospel of John means to you and and to me. This morning, we are going to reflect on the Gospel of John. And we're going to do it in three parts. Now, John wrote his gospel in what we've called two books, a book of signs and a book of exaltation. This morning, we're going to think about, as we think about the big picture of John, I'm going to suggest that we think about that book of exaltation, the second part of the book, itself in in two parts. We're going to consider Jesus revealed, revealing the glory of God in the upper room in the book of exaltation and also in the passion there in the upper room. So, book of signs, Jesus in the upper room, and then the passion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But, you know, before you get too far into any good story, you always discover that there's some introductory material, right? So, in the Hardy Boys books, there's always a paragraph, uh, maybe two, explaining who Joe and Frank Hardy are. It makes some comment about their friend Chet in his yellow jalopy, The boxcar children books always remind you that Henry, Jesse, Violet, and Benny are orphans who now live with their loving grandfather. Well, here in the Gospel of John, John tells us not only that the eternal God took on flesh and tabernacled among us, he also tells us through John the Baptist that the Old Testament had been anticipating the arrival of this Messiah. The priests and the Levites from Jerusalem asked John the Baptist, Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? They're expecting. The Old Testament had been telling them, Elijah's coming. The prophet is coming. John tells them, No, I'm, I'm not him. I'm just the voice prophesying out of the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist tells everyone who will listen, This... This Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Son of God. In other words, this is the man that the Old Testament had foretold and anticipated. He's here. He has arrived. Not only that, but as Jesus calls his very first disciples in chapter 1, they affirm that he is that promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Andrew tells Simon Peter, we found the Messiah. Nathaniel confesses, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So before we even get underway in the book of signs here in the Gospel of John, the author, John, very clearly introduces us to Jesus as the one that the Old Testament was waiting for. But that introduction is not enough. From chapter 2 all the way through chapter 12, John tells us seven signs which point to the glory of God in Jesus. I want to think about six things which the signs accomplished in the Gospel of John. First of all, we learned that signs point, right? Every good sign points. Points. When you see a sign on the side of a road, the significance of the sign is not in the sign itself, no matter how nice and pretty the particular sign is. The point of a sign is what it is pointing to. And so it is here in the Gospel of John. 
The seven signs are not the point. The seven signs point to the point. The signs point to the truth of who Jesus is. And one of the truths about who this Jesus is, one of the truths that the signs point to is the truth that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah, just as we saw in the introduction. Consider, for example, the the second sign that Jesus performed when he drove those money changers out of the temple. Do you remember that in chapter 2? Jesus justified his actions by saying this, destroy this temple, chapter 2 and verse number 19, and in three days I will raise it up. He then says in verse number 17, zeal for your house will consume me. In these words, David is quoting for us the, the words of uh, Jesus is quoting the words of David, his, his patriarch. Jesus, in this second sign, is showing us that he is the son of David. Jesus is great David's greater son. Or think about the words of Jesus to the woman at the well, right before that third sign. So Jesus, Jesus told the woman at the well in very clear terms that he is the Messiah. Over in chapter 4, in verse number 25, the woman says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It would be difficult for Jesus to be any more clear than what he is in this moment. Or consider the fifth sign. The fifth sign when Jesus fed the 5,000 men. John writes in chapter 6 and verse number 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. The Old Testament anticipated this man. And he has arrived, the people say. The signs point to Jesus as the Old Testament Messiah. But the signs also point to Jesus as the divine son. Jesus is far more than the Old Testament Messiah. He is the divine son. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day as his third sign. And Jesus justified healing a man on the Sabbath. Jesus justified working on the Sabbath. In John chapter 5 and verses 17 and 18 Jesus answered and said, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus then explains a few verses later in verse number 26, As the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to also have life in himself. God the Father, excuse me, is life in himself. And he has granted to the Son to also have life in himself. Jesus is the divine Son. Jesus is God himself. The identity of Jesus as the divine Son continued to bewilder the Jews throughout Jesus' ministry. Later on in John chapter 9, in verse number 35, Jesus is talking to a man who was born blind. And Jesus says in John 9, verse 35, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, 
you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This sign points to Jesus, not only as the Old Testament Messiah, but as the divine Son of God. Yet the Jews just could not wrap their minds around this. They would not believe. And so they persecuted the blind man, and they persecuted Jesus himself. Consider that great climactic seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Before Lazarus is raised, Martha confesses to Jesus in John chapter 11 and verse 27. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Then as Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead, he prays in verses 41 to 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, these signs point to Jesus as the divine Son of God. But throughout the Gospel of John, signs not only point to the identity of Jesus as the Old Testament Messiah and the Son of God, they also reveal to us very important truths about God's plans. For example, they, they reveal to us the sovereignty of God in salvation. The signs reveal to us the sovereignty of God in salvation. And this is a theme that comes up over and over and over in the gospel. We already referenced the verse, but back in John chapter 5 and verse number 21, Jesus declares, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus gives life to whom he will. Jesus is the sovereign life giver. And Jesus is not only talking about physical life, he is talking about spiritual life as well. In chapter 6, this same idea is revealed in either even greater clarity. We see in John chapter 6 and verse number 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not, never cast out. He then says just two verses later, down to verse number 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it on the last day. A few verses later, down in verse number 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. God is the sovereign of salvation. Later on in John chapter 10, in verses 14 to 16, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father... And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Not only does Jesus teach us that he has chosen his own unconditionally, but he also teaches us that he has accomplished a redemption particularly for those whom he has chosen. He died for his sheep. God is sovereign over salvation. 
And this is a significant point here in the book of signs. But the signs reveal more than just God's sovereignty over salvation. Signs also point to the eternal purpose and plan of what God is doing in this world. Consider, for example, Jesus' words back in John chapter 5, verses 21 to 29. John 5, 21 to 29. Listen to Jesus' words. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whomever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of life of judgment. God's eternal plans and purposes include a resurrection of all men and a judgment at the end of days. But not only does God's plan include a resurrection at the end of the age, God's plans also include a kingdom over which Jesus will rule as the Messiah King. We read in John 3, 3 and 5, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse number five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Consider the triumphal entry. As Israel was welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem on the last week of his life, we read in John chapter 12, Verses 12 to 15, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a colt's donkey. More is revealed about the kingdom of Jesus in the book of exaltation, in the second part of the the book of John. But here in the first part, in the book of signs, it is clear the Old Testament anticipated the Messiah to be the king of Israel. John looks forward to a day when Jesus will indeed rule over that kingdom. But you know, as we consider this book of signs, what these different signs point to and the things that the signs teach us. In fact, the signs do more than point and the signs do more than reveal. The signs, in fact, bring faith. They stir up faith. In fact, that was one of the purposes of the signs, wasn't it? The signs provoked faith in the hearts of the disciples. We read that back in in John chapter 2 in verse number 11. John chapter 2 and verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
Likewise, John tells us that after the second sign, also in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, 22 and 23, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Now listen, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at this Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. The signs stirred up faith in those who saw them. Consider also in chapter 4 and verses 39 to 41. This is Jesus with the Samaritans. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two more days. And many more believed because of his word. And he said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard of ourselves and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The third sign, when Jesus healed that official's son, that sign also brought faith. We read in chapter 4 and verses 52 to 53. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Skipping ahead to the sixth sign, the healing of the blind man. We read this in John chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. They cast the blind man out of the temple so he couldn't worship there anymore. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said to him, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The signs cultivate faith in the hearts of the people who saw them. We can hardly leave out the confession of the faith of Martha when her brother Lazarus was raised. John eleven twenty five to 27 Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The signs brought faith to those whom Jesus was calling. But the signs also brought hardness. We hear the hardness of the Jews after Jesus performed the second sign of cleansing the temple. Back in chapter 2 and verses 18 to 20, the Jews asked him, What signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? You can hear the unbelief in their question. We already read the response of the Jews to the fourth sign there in John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 18, this was one of our memory verses last year. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Perhaps we could summarize this hardening effect of the signs, bringing not only belief to those whom Jesus was calling, but hardness of hearts to the others. We could summarize it with the words of John 12, verses 36 and 37. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The Jews did not believe in Jesus. They were hardened in their unbelief. So the signs performed an important role here in the Gospel of John. They point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. They reveal God's sovereign plan in salvation. They reveal God's greater purposes and plans in the world. The signs cultivated faith in the hearts of those whom Jesus was calling. The signs also brought hardness of heart. Through all of this, the signs reveal God's glory in Jesus. But as we consider the big ideas here from the Gospel of John, we must move from the book of signs to the book of exaltation. In the book of exaltation, the gospel, uh, the gospel writer, John, he describes Jesus in the upper room, both before and after the passion, after his, before and after his, uh, his death and, and burial. So we have a number of teachings of Jesus in this upper room, both before his death and after his resurrection. We're going to consider those two times in the upper room together. In the upper room, when Jesus appears both before with his disciples teaching them and then after when he startles them and just kind of appears in that upper room, he gives us a number of teachings about himself Consider with me seven things that we learn about Jesus here in the upper room. In the first part, in the, what we call the upper room discourse, perhaps the, the most important part of that upper room discourse teaching is just this idea of Jesus coming and going and coming and going. This, this He's going to leave and then he's going to come back and he's going to leave and he's going to come back again and he's, gonna, he's going to leave again. Everything that Jesus teaches in the upper room discourse revolves around this idea. He's going, he's coming back, and then he's going again. Jesus says in John chapter 13 and verse number 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. As this upper room discourse goes on, it becomes clear to you and me, Jesus is going to go away. He's going to go away in death. And this is going to leave the disciples sorrowful. The world is going to rejoice during this time. But the disciples are going to be sorrowful. Nevertheless, Jesus promises to come back. He is coming back and the, the sorrow of the disciples will turn to joy. He will go away and he will not return again a second time until he's ready to bring his disciples to be with him forever. Jesus will come back for his disciples but Jesus reveals he's going away. The upper room also reveals to us the identity of Jesus in, in profound ways that we haven't seen up until now. 
For example, John reveals himself to be the exclusive way of salvation. You know the verse, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only that, Jesus reveals his identity as one with the Father. John 14, and verses 10 to 11. Do not believe that, uh, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is one with the Father. If you have seen Jesus, then you have seen the Father. Our God is a triune God. This is what is revealed in the upper room. Jesus is also a vine. We read in John chapter 15 and verse number 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, as the disciples of Jesus, we are entirely dependent on Jesus. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We also learn here in the Upper Room Discourse that Jesus has conquered the world. The worldly system of evil and sin will fall. Jesus says in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, he says. This is the identity of Jesus. He is one with the Father. He is the source of our life. He has conquered the world. And so if we are the branches, if we are in him, then we can have his peace. This is the Jesus who is revealed in the upper room. In the upper room, we also learned a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises that he will send his Spirit who will be with us forever. Jesus teaches that the world cannot receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we who do belong to Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. The world will experience the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will come into the world. He will convict of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Not only that, but, but when the Spirit comes to the disciples, He will help the disciples, the twelve apostles. He will help them remember all the things that Jesus taught. The Spirit will teach them what it means so that the apostles could preserve the teachings of Jesus for you and for me. We have those teachings preserved for us right here in our Bibles. The unique ministry of the Holy Spirit for the church is explained here in the upper room. Fourthly, Jesus reveals the future of the disciples here in the upper room. In John chapter 14, in verses 2 and 3, we read this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. The disciples of Jesus have a promise. We have a promise of spending forever with our Jesus. 
This is a marvelous promise of assurance to you and to me. This grounds our hope as believers. But until the return of Jesus, Jesus promises us that in this world we will have tribulation. Until Jesus comes back, we will suffer for Jesus. Our future as disciples of Jesus is a future of suffering and then of glory. Here in the upper room, we also heard Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is a prayer for the glory of God. In John 17, in verse number 1, Jesus, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. We then saw that Jesus makes four prayer requests to God on our behalf. Jesus prays that his disciples might be preserved through the sufferings that they experience in this world. Jesus had been preserving his disciples throughout his ministry. And now Jesus commits you and me to the hands of the Father, to the preserving work of the Father. Not only that, but Jesus also prays for our sanctification. Verse number 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Third, Jesus prays for our unity. And the Father answers this prayer request not through our ecumenical efforts with other churches, but by creating the church, the body of Christ. We have been united with one another, with all other Christians, from the day of Pentecost until Christ returns. We are all part of the body of Christ. Finally, Jesus prays that we might be with him. This is our future hope. Jesus has promised this to us in chapter 14, and he prays that it would happen here in John chapter 17. This is the prayer of Jesus here in the upper room. It's interesting to me that lessons from the upper room continue after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In John chapter 20, the disciples are in another upper room, and Jesus all of a sudden appears to them and teaches them the reality of the resurrection. Jesus really is alive. Jesus' new life is a glorious life. It is a powerful life. In John chapter 20 and verse 27, we read, Put out your finger. Jesus is talking to Thomas. Put out your finger. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not, be, do not disbelieve, but believe. In other words, this Jesus is not a spirit. He is not a ghost. Our hope is in more than just a wing and a prayer. Jesus truly is alive. One final lesson I want to draw our attention to here in the upper room is the mission of the church. Jesus has left us on earth for a purpose, for a reason. John chapter 20 and verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are sent by Jesus to bring the message of the, the death, 
the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the soon return of Jesus to a lost world who hates this Jesus and who will persecute the followers of this Jesus. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, even so I am sending you. This is our mission. This is why we are here. This is what we who believe in Jesus must be about. We skipped over the passion of Jesus in chapters 18 to 19. Those two chapters reveal to us the glory of God in Jesus, the Savior of mankind. We learned a number number of lessons about Jesus in these two chapters through the story of his death and crucifixion. In the passion of Jesus, we saw that, that Jesus is a Savior who is sovereign. The crucifixion events did not just happen to Jesus. No, Jesus was sovereign and Jesus was in control. Not only does the passion reveal to us the sovereign control of Jesus, it also clearly put on display that Jesus is the king of the Jews and the son of God. This was repeated over and over and over in these two chapters. In John chapter 19 and verse number 33, when they came to Jesus and saw he I'm sorry, chapter 18. 33, Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Well, Jesus declared, My kingdom is not of this world, in verse number 36. Pilate responded, So then you are a king. Jesus confessed, You say rightly, I am a king. Pilate then goes to the crowds and he asks them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Listen to all this repetition over and over and over. King of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. The soldiers would go on to mock Jesus. Hail, king of the Jews. Pilate tells the Jews, behold, your king. And finally, Pilate writes on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, what? King of the Jews. The passion reveals Jesus to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Not only that, but the passion reveals Jesus to be the Son of God. Jesus is in the garden, and he tells the soldiers who are seeking him, I am he. Remember what they did? When when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Later on, the Jews would tell Pilate, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he made himself to be the Son of God, they say. In his passion, Jesus is revealed to be the Son of God. The passion also reveals Jesus to be the sacrificial Lamb of God, the fulfillment of the Passover, the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. John attributes many events there at the cross to Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament types and shadows that were fulfilled in Jesus. Perhaps the most notable was that Jesus' legs were not broken. You remember the connection? The connection to that was the Sabbath Passover lamb whose legs were not to be broken. Finally, the Passion reveals to us that Jesus is actually the risen Messiah In John chapter 20 and verses 6 through 8, we read, 
Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. Now listen, and he saw, and he believed. Jesus is the Messiah, the risen Son of God. As I have rehearsed the teachings of the Gospel of John, I'm sure you have noticed things that I have left out. The Gospel of John is a rich book with many important teachings about Jesus. But you know, none of it matters if we don't put into practice what John has taught us. In the Gospel of John, John is calling you not just to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but to believe. John 20 and verse number 31, these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you will believe, you will have life in the name of Jesus. Over and over and over in the Gospel of John, we saw that the proper, appropriate response to the signs is to believe. The only appropriate response to the testimony of the death and the resurrection of Jesus is to believe. Jesus is the only one who can save you from the consequences of your sin. Jesus is the only one who can restore your relationship with the Father. Don't just know that he can do this. I was talking with someone this week and they reminded me of that text. Even Satan knows these things. The demons know these things and they tremble. Don't just know, believe. Remember, this is, this is belief not because you see. Not because you see some sort of sign or you hear some sort of tongue. This is beca belief because you don't see. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who not seeing yet believe. Throughout the gospel, John has emphasized, we believe even though we do not see. Don't try to base your faith in Jesus on your experience. Don't go chasing after experiences to validate your faith. The testimony of scripture is enough. If you do believe, Jesus is calling you to follow. John 21, 19. And after saying these things, he said to him, follow me. Believers are disciples. And disciples follow the leading of Jesus. We saw in the upper room that Jesus has sent us on a mission. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so send I you. You are sent by Jesus. What are you sent to do? Well, you're sent to obey. Jesus makes it very clear in the upper room that we are his servants, and servants do what our master tells us to do. We are called to obey but we're not called to obey merely out of, out of formal external commands. No, no, no. There is a heart 
Jesus says, you're not just my servants, you are my friends. There is a relationship and a love that we have. And so our obedience is motivated by our love for him. Not only are we to obey, we are also sent to bear witness to this Jesus. You are sent into the world to tell the world about this Jesus that you see clearly. You are sent to proclaim this love of this Jesus that you have seen here in the Gospel of John. You are sent into the world to tell your loved ones about the glory of this Jesus, the authority of this Jesus. You are sent into the world to tell them about Jesus. If you see that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, if you see that he is God in the flesh, if you see that he is the Savior of the world, you are sent into the world to tell your loved ones about this good news. You're also sent to suffer. In this world, Jesus said, you will have persecution. Jesus told John, you're going, uh, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted to walk. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you don't want him to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In this world, you will suffer. In this world, you will have persecution. You may just glorify God through your death. Jesus did. So don't be surprised if you do as well. Either way, you follow Jesus. If you believe, then you follow him in life and in death. This is the message of John. This is the message of the Gospel of John. Believe. And in believing, in the believing life that Jesus gives you, follow him. Brothers and sisters, as we turn the page on the Gospel of John, we must never move past the Gospel. When you think about Jesus, when you read about Jesus, see the glory of God in Jesus. Hear the message of his sovereign, life-giving Gospel Take the good news of that gospel with you in your life. Live it out in your obedience. Share this vision of the glory of God in Jesus with your friends and your family. Call them to believe, to share with you in this vision of the glory of God in Jesus. This is the call of the gospel of John. Father, I thank you for your word.